0: All right, guys, we are getting ready to start a brand new series that I cannot tell you uh, just how excited I am about this series. It is a passage of scripture that I have never, ever preached before. Uh, And and part of that is, (laughs) just to be very honest, I don't know that I've ever really understood it before. But uh, it's a passage that God has led me to and I think is so relevant for the church today. Uh, One of the things that we want to be about as a church is to To be about discipling people. To make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's Jesus' plan for us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And if we don't make disciples, then disciples don't get made. And if disciples are not made, then future disciples are not made. So it's critical that we do that. But here's the truth. And this this is really the heart of where we're going to be over the next several weeks. If my heart is not captured... By the love of Christ, I can read my Bible, I can pray, I can sit in the class and take notes, I can attend sermons and listen to them, I can sing songs, and my life will not make a bit of difference. Discipleship only occurs in those whose hearts have been captured by God. You know what I'm talking about because when you have fallen in love with somebody, nobody has to tell you to pursue them. Nobody has to tell you, okay, here's what you say and here's what you do. Th- there is something that is stirred within you. And when love is awakened within us, it drives our behavior. It changes our focus. It helps us to be able to, uh, to really accomplish some things that, that, that will occur in that relationship. And so what we want to do over these next several weeks is to really begin to focus upon how God has come to awaken love within us. Today's message is called Awaken by Love, and, and we're going to start in the Song of Solomons. It's in the Old Testament, back there by Psalms and Proverbs and in that area of your Bible, and if you would grab it and, and, and follow along, or if you've got your phones or tablets or whatever, however you want to do it, just, just be a part of this with us and, and walk with us through this passage. And, um, and it's written as a song, uh, and it's a song that is sung between two lovers back and forth to each other with a third group of a, kind of a, a backup chorus, if you could, could picture it that way. So you've got the, the husband and the wife singing back and forth to each other, and then off to the side from time to time, you're going you're gonna to see this part where this chorus just joins in with them and, and sings. And, and it's, a, it's a love song back and forth to each other, but it's so much more than a love song. The, the, the Song of Solomon... Uh, is a, is a song that was a part of Solomon's collection. There's some debate over whether Solomon was actually the author of this, if it was written by Solomon, or if it was written about Solomon and, and his first love, or if it was written to Solomon to show him the value of a single love. But it's a, it's a song that was in his collection. And so it says on Psalms, a song of Psalms, uh, verse 1, chapter 1, it says, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. So what he's saying is this is the best of the best. In Solomon's collection, this is the best of the best. Now, 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32 tells us that Solomon had, had penned 3,000 proverbs and or 1,005 songs. Think about that. This dude is, is writing proverbs and he is writing songs. But this is the best of the best that he wrote and, and the best of the best that was a part of his collection. So it's not critical whether it was written by him or to him or about him, but but it's the fact that it's it's there in his collection. And and in order for us to have a good understanding of what this Song of Songs is really all about, we've got to understand why it was written and and, and how it was used in the early church. Now, I'm going to just be real honest with you. This is a a song of songs that you read. You go, man, this is kind of racy. I mean, this dude's talking about parts of his wife's body and how much he enjoys them. And and you read it and you go, wow, this could be an incredible uh, sermon series about how to love your wife better, how to love your husband better. And I want to say to you, there are parts of this that will help you in that regard. But when you understand why this was included... And, and why this, this was a song that was sung in church. And you go, okay, are we really going to sing a song in church that just the whole purpose of it is to, for a man to tell his wife how beautiful her body is? No. When you research the Song of Songs, you find this out. The Song of Songs was sung every year by the church. Do you know when? On Solomon's wife's birthday? (laughs) No. (laughs) During Passover. What was Passover celebrating? What was it focused upon? God choosing a people and rescuing them from bondage and making them his very own. That is the, the core of why this was written, to celebrate God choosing someone who was unworthy, someone who, and and we'll see in in, in our passage this morning, somebody who, who no one else would have chosen, and making her his radiant bride. It is a picture at the core of what God did with us. We as unworthy, vile sinners, and yet God set his affection on us. And he chose us to be his very own. Not because there was any intrinsic value inside of us, but because he loved us. It's a story about God setting his affection upon us and our response to that incredible love. Some commentators will say this is a reflection back upon what love must have been like in the Garden of Eden before sin interfered and perverted that love. Back in the garden where, where Adam and Eve were both unclothed, naked, and yet felt no shame. were completely open to one another in every possible way. And then sin enters and love is perverted and, 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 and shame comes and all those things that, that, that influence our relationship. And so they say that this may be a picture of what love was really intended by God to be. But even more than that, it's a picture of what love is from God's perspective. And how he comes after us, how God pursues us. One commentator said this. He says, Today, the Song of Songs is functionally decanonized. You go, what in the world does that mean? It means for all practical purposes, we've just kind of pulled it out of the scripture. We don't talk about it. We don't preach on it. We, we, don't, we don't study it. We don't look at it. We don't see what the, the real purpose of the meaning is. And so, for all practical purposes, what that commentator is saying is this, you might as well just take it out of the Bible and, and, and not do it, because most people don't ever look at it. They don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to read it. They don't know, we as preachers, don't know how to preach it. Many preachers, I've read about six different commentaries in preparation for this series, and most of the preachers, most of the, the writers of the commentary and the preachers that I've listened to that want to preach this series want to do it like this. We are going to preach you a series that's going to tell you men how to get you a woman and how to love her like she's never been loved before. And ladies, we're going to talk to you about how to love a man and how to give yourself to him and, and, and make him come begging for more. I think that misses the point of why this song of songs Was written. Now, here's the thing. There's two ways to to, to look at this relationship with God. And God uses marriage in, in incredible ways to paint pictures for us about the love that he has for us. But we've got to be careful that we do something and we don't get this out of order. If I try to look at marriage, human marriage, and say, ah, human marriage tells me how God loves me. I'm starting with a broken model and trying to impose that upon a perfect God. The right way to do it is this. To start with the perfect God and say, How does God love us? Oh, now that's how a man needs to love his wife. That's how a woman should respond to her husband. You've got to start with the perfect model and then you apply that to the imperfect. Don't start with the imperfect and try to apply it to the perfect. Because here's what happens. If if we do that in in any way with the Lord, if we take any kind of human relationship and we try to look at the human relationship and then out of that figure out what God's like, we we get it backwards. Some of you grew up in homes where your your, your parents were harsh and they were mean and and they were spiteful and, and they did things to you that should never have been done to a child, and if you take that image and say, oh, that tells me how God is, then you get a messed up picture of who God is. But if you start with who God is and say, this is what a real father is supposed to be like. This is what a real father's supposed to love his child. Then you may look at your parents and say, you know what, they, they fell short and they didn't get it right. Thank God I've got a real father that knew how to do it. So we've got to start with this right. We don't, we don't want to just look at the, the love story and go, oh, well, that's that's neat. Maybe God loves us like that. We want to start with the, the true picture of, of who God is and how God loves us. Now, in, in Bible times, before we have the, the printing press and all the stuff, they're, they're telling these stories. They're singing these songs in church, but they want them to be memorable to the people because this image needs to stay in their mind. They're, they're, they're every year they're gathering for Passover, and they're remembering how God came to them in Egypt and set them free. And what God did to, to transform them and to take them from being a slave to being His people... And they're celebrating that. And so it's now, it's pictured as a love song between two people because that would be memorable for them to hang on to. Please do not read the song of Solomon as if Solomon died and somebody went through his diary and said, ooh, 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 look at this. That's not what this was. This was a song that was sung every year at Passover, celebrating God's redemption, God's coming and claiming his people. It was sung as a song of worship. And by definition, worship needs to be centered upon God. There's a lot of things that can call us to worship, but that worship needs to be centered upon God. There are sunrises that you see and and, and sunsets that God paints, and you look at that and, and it can cause you to worship, but you don't worship the sunset, you worship the God who created that sunset. So we look at this marriage and we go, man, this is an incredible relationship that that we see between a man and a woman. We see it that way and and, and we understand it, but we need to understand that that that, that is just to point us to something even bigger and even more grand. It's got to be centered upon God. It's a reminder of God's pursuit of an unworthy people. In Deuteronomy, if you've got your Bibles, you may want to look there, you may just want to jot this verse down. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, Look what the Lord says to his people that he's chosen. He says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is, in, is, is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. He's redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. In this passage, we see that that God is going to set his love. This king is going to set his love on a woman who, by all human standards, would be unworthy of his attention and certainly unworthy of his affection. It's 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 a passage that teaches us to model our relationships based upon this divine model that we've been given. Let me give you an example of that in Ephesians chapter five, verse twenty-five. It's a passage calling us as husbands to love our wives. It says, "Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her." Notice the order. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. He doesn't, say, he doesn't say, hey, Christ loves you as the church, you know, as a husband would love his wife. He gets the order right here. He says, I want you to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And so the model is the way Christ loved the church, and that's how a husband is supposed to love his wife. So we've got to get this in the, in the right order. And so here we start with, with verse 1. It says, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And then the woman speaks. Now, I know some of you men may not be able to relate to this. But in this song of songs, the woman gets the first word, and she gets the last word. Okay? She's going to start this thing off, and she is going to wrap this thing up. Now, what's interesting is this. In that culture, in that day, what we're about to read would be unheard of. This thing is going to start off in a shocking fashion for those who were to hear it for the very first time. Here is a woman... In a culture where women were not really allowed to express themselves and certainly not to express their romantic feelings. But here is a woman who has been touched by love and she can't hold back. She cannot hold back what she is feeling. It starts and it ends with her. And here's the first thing out of her mouth. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love, she's singing to her, that's the song, she's singing to her lover. Your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. What in the world is she saying? Well, it's important to realize that that this this relationship is in a Jewish culture. In the Jewish culture, it, it, it is done a little bit different than we do it here in America, uh, thank goodness. Uh, their culture is, is a little bit different. The, the groom would go and seek him a bride, and, and, and he would meet many times with that, with that bride's father or with her brothers or sisters if, if, if there was no uh, father still alive. And, and what would happen in a Jewish uh, uh, courtship was that the, 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 the groom would go and find a bride, and then he would negotiate with the, the ones that were over that young girl if the father was still alive. He would make a bride payment. Uh, They would agree upon some kind of a a bride payment. This is what I think your daughter is worth, and this is what I'm willing to pay for her. Do you remember I told you the story about when I was in Africa, and we were riding down the road, and this flatbed truck, it was a banana truck, came passing me by, and tied up in the front of that banana truck, it was was just like a flatbed truck with with side rails on it that you could see through, and in the front was a big red heifer tied up to the the guardrail up in the front, and, and then there was this, this glider rocking chair, and there was all these presents that, that lined the back of that, that truck. And they had ribbons tied on them, and it was all flying in the wind. And these guys are riding down the road just honking their horn, and they were just the most excited people in the world. And they passed the bus that I was in. So I asked my bus driver, I said, what in the world is that? He says, that's a groom going to get his bride. And I'm like, okay, hold on, I'm from America. What's, whoa, 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 whoa. What's the cow all about? And this was his response. He says, His bride is a one cow woman. That's the gift that he's giving to the father. That's the bride price that he's willing to pay. Well, my friend had been married to the love of his life, and she had just died right before we got to Africa. And so I said to driver Emmy, I said, Driver Emmy, what about your wife? He said, Oh, she was a four cow woman. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, Oh. But here he was taking this, this bride price and, and taking it to the father as a down payment on his bride. It's a picture of what we're going to see here. Here is this woman. They are in the middle of this betrothal. Okay, So what would happen in a Jewish deal is that the, the groom would go seek out a bride. He would, he would make a deal with the father. He would pay a bride's price, a deposit, guaranteeing that he would come back. And then he would leave and he would go to his father's house. And he would add on to his father's house this bridal suite, which would be where he and his wife would then live. And when the house was complete and everything was ready, then he would come many times at midnight. Scripture talks about this in the New Testament. Come at midnight and, and, and let out the shout that he is there for his bride. And he would claim her, sweep her up, and carry her back to his father's house where this huge week-long festival would begin. And they would consummate the, the marriage then, at that wedding feast, and they would be together forever from that point forward. Where this story picks up is in the betrothal period. He's already chosen her. They, he, he is the king, as we're going to see in the story. And so when a king would choose a woman to be his, his bride, she would come back to the castle usually, and they would begin all these, these special treatments for her pedicures and manicures and, 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 and would do the oils and the, you know, it's just a spa day, one day after another, after another. Sometimes those things would last a year to two years where she would be just treated like royalty and, and kind of getting ready to be the king's wife. Once a person was betrothed, it would be the same as, as being married in our culture. The only way you break off a betrothal was through a divorce decree. Remember when Joseph and Mary... Uh, we were, were betrothed to be married. And then Mary showed up pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Remember that? And Joseph was considering setting her aside. That would have been a legal divorce. So it's not like us where we get engaged, you put a ring on the girl's finger, and you keep the receipt just in case it doesn't work, okay? That's not the way that it went in that day. Once you were betrothed, you were considered married, even though you haven't consummated the marriage, and even though you haven't come together and had this week-long celebration. So the girl was to get herself ready. She was to keep herself pure. He was to take care of her needs and all those kinds of things during that time. And, And then there would be the great big celebration. So this story takes off in the middle of this betrothal, They have come together. She knows that she's been chosen by the king. And and evidently he has laid a kiss on her that has just left her wanting more. So her first words are, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. He had found her. He had pursued her. He had chosen her. And she was responding willingly to his invitation to be his wife. Here it's interesting that she says, let him kiss me. She wants him to be the, the, the pursuer. He, he is that pursuer. In, 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 in that culture, if you were a king, all these girls running around with this fairy tale dream of one day marrying their prince, she couldn't approach him. He had to approach her. What a biblical picture of our relationship with the Lord, that he had to come for us. All through this is laced with all this imagery of, of what Jesus did for us. But here, he's come for her and, 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 and he's kissed her. Or maybe she's just anticipating that first kiss. But, but here she speaks out and she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. She desires him. She desires his love and his kiss. And she doesn't want to hold back. She doesn't want to hide it at all. She wants everyone to know. Everyone to know. She's been chosen by the king, and she feels so honored and so blessed to feel that way. The best illustration I can think of for that is how Janet feels when she's with me. <laughs> Y'all know better than that, right? Here she is. She's been chosen. And what's going to become amazing and, and, and clear here in just a minute in a couple of verses is how unlikely she was to be the one that the king chose. She says to him, let, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love, it gets personal now, your love, not just him and his kisses, but your love. She's, it's like she's looking in his eye and she's saying, your love is better than wine. Her heart had been awakened There was no turning back the clock, no holding back. She says, your love, what what I feel when I'm with you is better than wine. It's intoxicating. It's pleasing. It's even addictive, she would say. It so satisfies me. Your anointing oils are are fragrant. They're, They're better than Diane's bath bombs. It's just those things that, that she's saying, look, and, and this was a part of that process where she would have been brought into the castle and they would begin to anoint her skin with oil and begin to, to prepare her so that she would have the fairest of all skins and, and, and these, these daily treatments that they would offer her, which she never would have had before. Your anointing oils are, are fragrant. They're appealing, alluring, they're restorative, they're transformative. She was being transformed from this sweaty, little girl to a fragrant bride your name is oil poured out his name represented his character and who he was and all that he had to his to his name his character oozes out it's how he treats her and how he honors her and how he values her how he provides for her every need And it says that that name and that character is poured out. It just comes out. It's not held back in reserve. He's not holding back saying, all right, I'm going to hold back on her and I'm going to give her just a little bit at a time. He is lavishing her with his love. He He is taking care of her every need. It flows freely. And then she says, therefore, virgins love you. What is she saying? She's saying every young girl would want to be treated like this. Every young girl would love to have a king show up at her door, choose her to be his bride, lavish her with everything a woman could ever want. No wonder every girl in our country would love to be your bride. That's what she's saying. And then verse 4. She says, draw me after you. Let us run. What's she saying? Draw me after you. Let us run. The NIV says it this way. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. She's saying, look, I, I just, I, I just want to get to the wedding day. I just want to get through this betrothal period as quickly as we can. I'm ready. I want to be with you. It reminds us spiritually of how we've been chosen by God. And and the last words of the New Testament, as as the writer of Revelation sums it up and and, and winds up the story about the, the return of the bride for his groom, says, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. It ought to be the desire of our heart that, that now that we've been chosen by Christ to be his bride, that we, we, we yearn and we long for his love. We long to, to be in his presence. We long to, to be embraced and wrapped up by that love. But we also long to get beyond the betrothal and get to the consummation of that relationship when we will be with him forever and ever in heaven. It's incredible. Draw me after you. Let's, 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 let's take me away. Let us run. Let's Let's hurry. She's ready to be completely his. And that day could not come quick enough for her. It's all that she can think about. You know why? Because love has been awakened in her. Let me just put a parenthesis in here and say this. If, If love is ever awakened in you in relationship to the Lord, it will be the driving force of your life. It will be the thing that, that motivates everything else that you do. When love is awakened in us, not just an intellectual knowledge of, oh, wouldn't that be nice if. But, but when it, it's, it's true and it's real and, and you've experienced and you've tasted and you've seen that the Lord is good. When that, when that is awakened inside of you, then it drives everything else that you do. It's not that you always get it perfect, but it's the driving force that, that motivates and, and, and creates in you this great big desire. Draw me after you. Take me away with you. Let us, let us hurry, she says. Can you feel the, the, the heartbeat within her just racing as she's saying, look, all these gifts are nice. All this oil is great. It's fragrant. It's all, all that stuff is, is good. But, but I just want you. I just want to be with you. And then she makes a comment here. Chapter four, verse four. says, "The king has brought me into his chambers." You're going, "Ho, oh, what is that?" Well, we know they're in the betrothal period. We know this is a song that is sung in church. And so we know that the love that they are professing to each other is a pure love. It's not a lust, and it's not something that's outside the boundaries for which God has set. This is a celebration of pure love. And it says, the king has brought me into his chambers. Her king, the one who has chosen her, has now taken her out of the public square and brought her under his own care. It's a picture now. In in that day and time, you would would not see a, a man and a woman on the street embracing and kissing. That was not done back then. That was reserved for private. And she says, he's pulled me out of the crowd. He's chosen me to be his own. And he's taken me into his chamber. We're not talking about Different people, okay, mainly liberals would, would say this, would say that, that his chambers is this private room, but it's not premarital sex. It's not cohabitation. That's not what she's picturing here. She's saying, we've had some time alone to get to know each other. Some time that, 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 that we can speak to one another, some time that we can spend out of the public eye just getting to know each other. It's that time that you spend when nobody else is looking. Nobody else is there. Just her and him together. Guys, it's those moments that we have with God when nobody else is in the room. And you're in God's presence and you're hearing him speak to you through his word and through the Holy Spirit. And it's those moments where he has pulled you aside from all the distractions and he's brought you into his presence. And he's got you there and he wants to speak to you. He wants to look deep in your eyes and you look deep into his heart. That's what she's describing. And she says, my king has brought me into his chambers. He's the king and he has chosen her. He's taken her off the street and he's brought her into this private room he's called her out of the crowd so that he can be exclusively hers and she can be exclusively his again these actions here are totally pure and here's the amazing thing the amazing thing is that she feels totally comfortable in his presence She's not afraid that he's going to drag her into his chambers and make sexual advances upon her or rape her or hurt her in any way. His character has oozed. She has seen his heart. She knows and she can say without any kind of fear or trepidation that he loves her. She's totally safe and secure alone with him. That will be something that she had never experienced before as we'll see in these next few few verses. She's totally safe and totally secure when she's alone with him. His character and the purity of his love. There is no fear that she'll be taken advantage of. You know, many believers today are afraid to be alone with God. Because they've been abused by others. And they feel like if I open up my heart to God and I say, God, I am all yours. I'm 100% in. I'm I'm all yours. That that God's going to say, okay, great. Now that you're mine, let me send you to Africa. Okay, now that you're mine, I'm going I'm to use you for my own selfish purposes. And many of you know that feeling. You, you've been in a relationship where you've been used and you've been hurt. And you know how hard it is or was for you to open yourself up to the next person. This young girl, as we'll see in just a minute, was taken advantage of by her brothers. And yet she feels totally at peace in the presence of this king who loves her. 1 John chapter 4, verses 18 and 19 remind us of the love of God. It says, For there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. But we love because He first loved us. So the king takes her into his chamber. She's not afraid. It's pure love. It's not lust, and it's nothing outside the bounds of what God would have ordained. And now the chorus of of, of singers is going to join in as she's finished this first little part of what she's saying to the king. And they say, we will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine, and rightly do they love you. Here's what the chorus is saying. We we celebrate with you. We are happy and joyful that you have found this kind of love. We will extol, we will speak highly of your love, even more than wine. And rightly do they love you. No wonder all the other maidens, virgins as they call it in this translation, no wonder they look at you and go, wow, wow, if only me. Now, let's talk about why this love that she's just described is so amazing. Why why is it that she is so taken back by the fact that he loves her? She's about to tell you. She's just described her lover and his character and and, and the lavish gifts and the lavish love that he's poured out upon her. And now she's about to describe herself. And this is the first thing that she says about herself. Verse 5. I am very dark, but lovely. Now, in our culture... People pay money to go sit in tanning beds. And and the darker the tan, the the more we think, wow, you know. In that day and time, it was just the opposite. If there was somebody, a a woman with dark skin, it meant that she was a poor laborer. They didn't have tanning beds back then. So if you had dark, dark, dark skin, that meant you've been forced to work in the fields. And, And you were not anything that a king would ever look for. Look at her. I am very dark. But I am lovely. What is she saying? Follow me here and see if this doesn't make sense to you. You look at my skin. You see dark. You see poverty. You see field worker. But when he looks at me, he says, I'm lovely. The world says this. My lover, my king says that how true is that for us in the spiritual sense the world looks at us and says and god looks at us and says wow i'm very dark she says but he thinks i'm very lovely i'm a poor laborer but he sees me as a future queen i'm dark that's her assessment of herself that's her past I'm lovely. That's his assessment of her. That's her present and her future. She's been transformed because he chose her. So she says to the daughters of Jerusalem, I'm like the tents of of, of Kedar, and like the curtains of Solomon. You're going, okay, what does that mean? The the area of Kedar was an area where all the tents were made out of, guess what? Black goat skin. That's what tents were made of. So you look out over this area of Kedar, all you see is just black, 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 But there's the curtains of Solomon. Are they black? Not at all. This is a play on what she's just said. I am dark like the tents of Kedar. But I am lovely like the curtains of Solomon. The king's curtains were these tapestries with all these colors that nobody else could afford to pay for. The finest, colorful tapestry. She says, I'm, I'm, I was like the tents of Kedar; I was this black goat skin. That was my past, my darkness, my hopelessness. But he's transformed me into a curtain of Solomon. This finest, colorful tapestry, a symbol of where she is headed and what she's going to be. It's a picture of her past and her future. And then she says to these daughters of Jerusalem in verse 6 Do not gaze at me because I'm dark. Don't, Don't look down on me because I have the dark skin. Because the sun has looked upon me. I've been out in the sun. My mother's sons, maybe her stepbrothers, were angry with me. And they made me the keeper of the vineyards. What in the world is she saying? Watch this. There's a reason that I have dark skin. My brothers who were angry with me forced me into the fields. They, they, they kept me out there. They used me for their own advantage. They, they took advantage of me. And, and she's saying, when, when he found me, I was, I was this one that was, was dark and the sun had looked upon me. I was a hot mess, beaten down by my environment. My brothers, my mother's sons were angry with me. They were abusive and mistreated me. They took advantage of me. There's no father in this passage that's mentioned to, to protect her and to guard her. You see now why a king coming to rescue her was such a big deal. All she had known all of her life was abuse and mistreatment. And now she has a king that's what? Lavishing the finest of everything upon her. Everybody looked at her and says, yeah, you're like the black goats. But he says, I'm lovely. Like the tapestry in Solomon's temple, in Solomon's uh, uh, castle. She had lived at the mercy of her brothers. In fact, they had forced her to be the keeper of the vineyard to the point that she says, my own vineyard I have not kept. I was forced just to work all the time. I had no time to take care of myself. No time to worry about the sunburn that I have encountered, about the, the dark skin. No, no time to, to, to put on the anointments and the oils that would, would take care of my parched skin. I was working so hard for them. That I was unable to care for myself. Was trapped and hopeless. Certainly never felt like I would be chosen by the king. I was never going to be appealing to a man. Especially a man of that caliber, she would say. What king goes looking for a field hand to be his wife? This is a picture of royalty coming after a field hand this is not about race some people have tried to use i'll see this is why whites are superior oh my gosh don't make me vomit that's not what this is this is a picture of god coming after his bride It's a picture of of God leaving the throne room, leaving behind everything, and sending his son to die on a cross for us, to purchase us as his bride. He made the bride payment that we might be his. And yet, what we see in churches throughout the world is this apathetic bride. Yeah, I'm Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian, so what? Do you, do you get the, f- the feel of where we're going with this, this story? This is a girl who had no hope, and yet the king came after her. It's a girl who had no future, and yet the king showed up and says, I choose you. And she's looking behind her going, Me? It's a picture, guys, of what Jesus did when he came, and for no explainable reason, he chose us. How can we be apathetic? How can we yawn at a love like that? How can that not awaken something inside of us to say, he chose me to be his own? He is taking me out of the fields and bringing me to his castle. He is, he, is, he is not leaving me out in the sun to fend for myself, but he is lavishing upon me his love and all that comes with it. He's not going to abuse me, but he's going to protect me and provide for me. How can I not be excited about that? How can that not awaken a love deep within me? Paul tries the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 And following, he says this, he says, Brothers, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, in order to bring to nothing the things that are. He chose the field hands, is what he's saying here. And he did so, verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's what God has done. And that is the core of the message of the Song of Solomon, that here is this girl who was the field hand, Never, the, the king wouldn't even be in her presence, and she never had a hope of ever entering into his castle. And yet he came, and he chose her, and he pursued her, and he made her his own. And don't you think for a minute that she's going to be told to sit down and shut up and don't tell anybody how much he loves you. How does she start this song? Let him kiss me let him love me oh my gosh i can't get enough of that and i want the world to know it ought to be the way that we feel when we think about our relationship with jesus christ and what he did to choose us who were not of noble birth who who were foolish in the eyes of the world who who were weak in the eyes of the world and that god chose chose that which was low and despised and things that are not and why did he do it So that in our relationship, we can never say, look what I've done. Look who I am. All we can say is, man, his grace is amazing. His grace is transformative. So as we close today, if this Jesus that you've been told about, if the Jesus that you grew up kind of picturing in your mind is, is some stern, demanding, overbearing tyrant, that just forces you to work his field, then I want to invite you to stick around for the series and meet the real Jesus that the Bible points us to. The Jesus who is the pursuer of the one that he loves. He is the one who takes delight in the one that he chooses. He's the one who who transforms the, the field hand into a bride, who clothes us in righteousness that he provides. Jesus is a passionate pursuer. We will see more of this groom in the the pages and chapters ahead, but he is a passionate pursuer who pursues his bride, who loves us with more uh, love than our minds can even begin to imagine. He is the king who paid an enormous price in order to have us as his bride. And his love for us changes our identity provides us with a future, and supplies us with every reason to stand on the rooftop and shout, Jesus is mine, and I am his, and I want the world to know. In this story, we will see that Jesus is the bridegroom, and we are his bride. And if you don't know this Jesus yet, or if your image of who he is and what he's all about is warped and messed up, Be a part of this study, and let me show you through the Word of God and through this imagery of this incredible marriage what it looks like to belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because this is not just the song of all songs, but we are talking about the King of all kings. And He chose you to be His own. That's the best news in the whole world. And if you can hear that and still yawn, we need to talk. Because something's missing let God awaken this love in you. And then nobody will have to, to say to you, hey, let me, let me get you in a discipleship group. Let me, let me get you to a Sunday school class. Let me, let me get you to a place that you can learn more about God. You'll be saying, when's the next time that we meet? When's the next time that somebody can help me to understand just how much I'm loved? When's the next time that I can pick up my Bible early in the morning and read that Bible and say, oh my gosh, there's another facet of God's love for me. When I met Janet, everything in my world changed. I remember one of the first couple times that I went to see her in Lake Charles, I was working in a church in Houston. And I had a little senior adult lady who was my secretary named Maxine. And, and remember, i have been dating somebody for several years before I met Janet. And when I came back that first or second trip, after getting to know Janet, and I was in the office that next week, and she looked at me, and she says, oh, Rob. And I'm like, what, what? She goes, oh, Rob. And I said, what? And she says, you found her. I said, I think so. And when I found her, nobody had to make me drive from Houston to Lake Charles on the weekends to see her. I reworked my schedule to do that. Nobody had to force me to pick up the phone at night and to call her and tell her about my day and hear about her day. We chose those things. And when love is awakened in you in regard to the Lord, nobody's got to force that. It is the natural outflow of what happens when you meet Jesus face to face. So if you don't know him yet, man, I want you to know him. And I want to be able to introduce you to him. And I'm going I'm to make myself available to do that. And, and i just I'm telling you, that's what it's all about. And if you've grown up in church and your idea of who Jesus is is kind of messed up, then this is a time to retool, to rethink, and to let God transform that image. So I want us to pray together. If I could go on for hours here. Uh, and, and man, I tell you what, there's I've got several more pages of notes. We're going to cut it off here and pick up next week. Please be a part of this study. And if you have to be out, tune in with us online. Don't miss a part of this because this is going to help awaken love in you, which will drive discipleship, which will transform not only our church, but the world. Let's pray.